In our home for some time now, we've been fans of all things Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know, I've been reading the, the original Conan Doyle short stories. They're quite good. I commend them to you. Yes, they're written in 1800. You've got to work through some of the language, but they're phenomenal stories. And, of course, we've been huge fans of the BBC recent Sherlock series starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. We love them so much we've named our Basset Hound Sherlock. And so, you know, because hounds are investigators, they just put their nose to the ground and investigate wherever they go, so we just thought that was an appropriate name for him. Sherlock Holmes is perhaps the most beloved known figure in all of fiction. He's brilliant, and he's really, really good at what he does. He's better than any of us could ever be, yet he's flawed. That's why we like him. He's a man of extraordinary abilities, but he has these incredible mood swings and that has that balancing relationship with Dr. Watson, who served in the British military, and they're the most incompatible friends you'd ever know, yet there's a devotion to one another which makes their relationship so great, and it's wonderful. Despite Sherlock's somewhat cold, reptilian demeanor, there's a, there's a warm heart inside. And what I love about the new series is they've kept so many of the phrases that Conan Doyle had in, in the essays, in the short stories. You hear him say often, Excellent! I've come to a deduction, Watson. It's elementary, Watson. Mrs. Hudson, the game's afoot. Or Mrs. Hudson, the game is on. It's been great to just, oh my gosh. It's exactly like it is in the novels. But I bring us back to the States here today. And in September here at Christ Church, in very practical ways, it's the beginning of our church year. As we start off, hence the football theme on kickoff Sunday, all our ministries and small groups are in full gear. And it's the one day of the year we lay the foundation for the rest of the year. What is our message? What are we about here at Christ Church? And so I decided to take these two bookends of Luke's gospel and build a message because there's nothing more foundational to who you are as a Christian than your view of the Bible. What do you think of it? And so our focus today is the Bible's history, or better said, the Bible as history, looking through the eyes of Dr. Luke, as well as we will remember September 11th today. So we're on an investigation today, so you can draw your own deduction. With Luke, and we will note in this readings, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, and if you're visiting with us, you can note in the very back of the bulletin are the texts for the day. What you're going to note is the Bible gives us certainty. Gives us certainty, too, not just about cold, hard facts, but about a person. And those facts about a person aren't just for our minds, they're for our hearts as well. So that's what we're going to see. The Bible gives us certainty. It gives us certainty not just in facts, but about a person. And it's not just cold, hard facts about certainty about a person, but it's for our hearts as well as our minds. First of all, looking at the certainty that Luke gives us. Luke, this physician writing to a nobleman Theophilus, in verse 3 says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What Luke is doing here in these first four verses is setting up the next 24 chapters of historical narrative. And what he's saying in these is totally countercultural to what our culture now believes. It's been going on for 100 years. Some of you were taught this view. My parents taught me this view. They later came to change. But it's especially a narrative that is very popular today, and it's, it's what our culture says. It's common sense in regards to the Bible. Because this is what the narrative is. This is what your neighbors, your coworkers, the people where you hang out with, this is what many of them believe. Number one, everybody knows that Jesus died. Many legends circulated orally, and the Bible was translated years and years. These legends circulated about his life. And therefore, greater embellishments went on. Therefore, you get the miracles and what have you. And therefore, it's like the telephone game. Then we came up with what we have today. Secondly, finally, and eventually, many of these legends were written down. But there were many Gospels. And then three, because there were many Gospels, the church, in a a power grab, had to consolidate their power at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And therefore, these four were chosen, and all the others were left on the cutting room floor, like a Hollywood video. That's the narrative. Many of us were taught that. Many people believe that today. And the only problem with those three ideas is that they're wrong. You know, apart from that, they're great. But the reality is that's not how the Bible was compiled and how it was put together. Richard Balcom wrote a great book, and I encourage you to go buy it, or you can even download the PDF for free. I don't know if that's legal or not, but I did. Um, (laughs) It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Just Google it, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Phenomenal scholarship. Richard Balcom is an Anglican scholar out of Ridley Hall in Cambridge, England. And he responds to those, that cultural narrative in these ways. Addressing the first one, saying that the, the eyewitness became embellished over the years. First of all, he says, no, this is eyewitness account, according to Luke. From testimony, carefully preserved from the mouth of living, breathing eyewitnesses. Historians value eyewitness testimony. We value it now because there's no better resource than historical eyewitnesses. And in those days, it was even more important before the printing press because everything had to be copied very carefully. You know, it was important for the historian to say, I didn't make this up. It's not based on something legend or fable. It's an account based on surviving eyewitnesses holding the historian accountable for what he's going to say. And people could go fact-check the historian, by the way. And the first four verses in Luke really lay this out very well. It's very formal, not only in the Greek, but it's formal in the English, isn't it? It's the way for Luke to give the reader historiographic evidence for the information he's going to present to you henceforth in the next 24 chapters. It's a way for him to say... This is not fiction. This is not legend. This is true. So who are some of these eyewitnesses? How do I know that? Well, 
All you got to do is just read how they were put together throughout all four Gospels. For example, all four Gospel writers write about the women at the tomb, but only Luke names Salome of one of the women who discovered Jesus at the resurrection. Why would Luke in our final passage in Luke 24 say there are two disciples on the road to Emmaus with Jesus, one of them was named Cleopas? Why does Mark in chapter 14 quoting that Simon of Cyrene was the one who carried Rufus, and by the way, his sons are Rufus and Alexander. All four Gospels name the blind man healed in the Rome, but only Mark names him as Bartimaeus. All four Gospels say Peter cut off the ear of, of a servant of the temple, but only John names him as Malchus. If you're writing fiction, according to Balcom. You either name them or you don't. But you don't give one name and not the other. And if you don't know the names of the eyewitnesses, you don't name them. And that's what we have in the four biographers, the four gospel writers. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses. And they saw it in its history. Secondly, to the claim that these were all late-dated documents and got written much later than after the original fact. That's not true. The ones that didn't get accepted were never accepted anywhere because they were late-dated. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. How do I know that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> just, just a couple years ago, just a couple years ago in Egypt, a fragment, six fragments of the John's Gospel chapter 18 were discovered on a papyrus. It's amazing fine. And it's the same Greek that's in the Bible that's sitting on my desk back at the ministry center, friends. Exact same word for word. And what scholars say is this is evidence that shows that John was completed at the very latest 90 A.D. 60 years after the life of Jesus. And the previous three, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were completed before that. They have fragments of those writings. There is one fragment of Mark which is dated in the late 50s A.D. These are extraordinary evidences. And you didn't hear about that on ABC, CBS, or NBC, did you? You didn't hear about that on CNN. You didn't hear about it on Fox. You didn't hear about it on PBS NewsHour. Because the world isn't that excited about it. Well, Christians are very excited about it. Because when you read the Da Vinci Code, which says that whole cultural narrative, which is in every major university, especially the elitist universities, our young people are getting duped, and it's just not the way it was, and not the way it is. All the Gospels were written within 20 to 60 years of the resurrection and death of Jesus. Only the four Gospels were written that early, and they were trusted all along. It was a no-brainer. And so third, and finally, to the claim that the church was just consolidating their power, making sure that those lesser gospels didn't gain traction. Well, they didn't gain traction, number one, because they had no traction to gain. They were bizarre, if you read them, quite frankly. But also, is it really consolidating power if you're trying to promote your religious figure and your religious figure dies upon the cross naked and ashamed and crying out loud, my God, my God, why would you forsake me? 
Is that a power grab to you? I mean, if I was promoting a religion, I'd have my founder surrounded by family and friends like John Adams on the 4th of July. That's the way to go, right? But that's not how our Lord died. And, and another power grab, wouldn't you want the disciples to look more like General Patton or, or, or like Omar Bradley or some great figure than a bunch of guys that look like deputy dog following Jesus? They look rather stupid at times. They're a little thick. And we would have been thick because they're human just like us. Because why are they portrayed that way? Because that's the way it happened. There's really no other good reason for their content. So what Luke is trying to say to you and what I'm trying to say to you is this. Don't believe the Bible because it's exciting, though it is. Don't believe the Bible because it's relevant and will meet your needs, though it will. Believe it because it's true. It's true because it happened. And only if it's true and only if it happened will it ever meet your needs. That's the first point. The scripture gives us certainty of what we've been taught. Secondly, it's not just certainty about some mindless facts, because that's the way many people treat Jesus. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't impact them. There's a reason for that. It's a certainty about a person, and it's destructively the Bible only in general and to miss its message in entirety. If you flip to Luke 24 in your Bibles, or in the back of your bulletin, you'll notice what Jesus says. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. These two disciples don't get it. One of them we know is named Cleopas. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, hey, fellas, you're reading the Bible and you're missing the forest for the trees. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, here's what Jesus is and what the rest of the New Testament is saying. Messiah has come. He has redeemed the world. And he didn't come just to redeem Israel. He came to redeem the world, which means you and me. He didn't come to build a conquering army. He went to a cross took the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that God's forgiveness, pardon, and love can come into our lives and we can have abundant life and life eternal. And then he says the most amazing thing in verse 27. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See what he's doing here? Moses and all the prophets is another word for all of the scripture. In other words, all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. Every law, every precept, therefore. It's not only useless to believe the Bible and miss its message, it's absolutely devastating to, if you keep it in factual knowledge only. For example, you heard we return in the fall to doing the summary of the law, right? The very beginning of the service, you heard me say for the first time since June, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Why do, we, why do the reformers put that? Actually, it was the ancient church that did that, and reformers recaptured it. Why did they put that there at the beginning of the service? Let me ask you a question. How did you do with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength this week? How did you do in loving your neighbors this week? Not real good, probably. You probably didn't get 100%. Right? Right? That's why. Because if you keep it at factual knowledge, you hear that and you go, rats! I'm doomed. Remember Mark Twain had that recurring nightmare of a Bible, a 300-pound Bible on his chest, weighing him down. Why? Because he read it. And it was just factual knowledge, friends. When you miss the message, and these are just people to model, examples on how to live, it will crush you. An NYU literature professor assigned to her students the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, because she knew most of them hadn't read it. So she said, I want you to, it's, it's a great piece in Western literature. I want you to read this. Western literature written in the East. It's, 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 it's a great piece of literature. Read it and write an essay on what you think about the Sermon on the Mount. Almost every student in this class of 30 said, I do not like the Sermon on the Mount because it's telling me how I ought to live and there's nobody who ever lives like that. Exactly. Because that's what happens. We all know we should be loving like the Sermon on the Mount, forgiving like the Sermon on the Mount, generous like the Sermon on the Mount. And we recognize we can't do it. See, if you read the Bible as just truth, just certainty, it'll crush you, just like Mark Twain. And what Jesus is saying in this is, it's all about me. I've lived the great commandment for you. I've lived the Sermon on the Mount for you. I did it because I lived in a perfect relationship with the Father and went to the cross and took the curse that was to be upon you. I took it on me, and when you put your trust in me, you have the righteousness that I deserved before the Father. It's beautiful. And because of that, God delights in you. He loves you, accepts you just as you've done everything that Jesus had done in a perfect relationship with him. Because we're saved by sheer grace, not obeying or, and being a good little boy and girl. Should you obey the Lord? Of course you should obey the Lord. But, but because of the relationship with your Heavenly Father, not to gain favor. Because not only are the laws about him, the stories are about him. Joseph, who redeemed his people. David, who saved his people. Moses, who stood in the gap for his people. Jonah, who ran from God and spent three days in the belly of the great fish. If you read all those stories and say to yourself, well, I ought to be that faithful. I ought to be redeeming people, saving people, standing in the gap for others, sacrificing. That's going to crush you. Because if you see the Bible just as facts and not about Jesus, you'll get an inferiority complex eventually. Or you'll find up running away from the faith and joining the Navy. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but you know a bunch of sailors who did, didn't you, John? They do that in the Navy. <laughs> or you go to New York or L.A. 
right? Yeah. And you come back to Cleveland because it's kind of a trendy place to be now. <laughs> but the reality is people do that because nobody helped them understand the Bible. Jesus says, I am the true Joseph for you. I redeemed you because I loved you. I am the true David who slayed the enemy of sin and death. I've done that for you because I love you. I stood in the gap for you like the true Moses. And I spent three days in the depths of the ocean depth dead for you because I love you. See, that doesn't just affect your thinking. It affects your heart, doesn't it? And that's the third point. It's not just for the mind, it's for the heart. And the disciples saw that in verse 32 of chapter 24. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Wouldn't you have to be, like to have been on that Bible study where he just took Hosea that Catherine read? It's all about Jesus. The psalm that Sue led us in, it's all about Jesus. Because it is all on Jesus, and their hearts are on fire. The longings of our hearts knew that we were in the presence of God. Didn't they burn? See, the main point here is that we all, you can create great arguments for the truth of the gospel. You can do great apologetics. They're necessary, but it's insufficient in and of itself. Because your heart does follow your mind, but facts in and of themselves are insufficient. You see, that's what I've been doing up until this point. But ultimately, the heart of the gospel is to bring Jesus into your heart so that you know it, you experience it. Because mind faith only equals self-absorption and self-sufficiency. The good news of the gospel is God so loved the world that he gave his life for you so that you may have life abundant and life eternal present and future, and that will change you, and that will change your identity, and you will stop looking at yourself, and you'll look to him to live, and you say, I want to be like this one who died for me, and so the question then becomes, how do I get this? Well, they give us a little hint there at the end of chapter 24. You break bread. That's not just taking communion. Although we are going to do that in a few minutes. It's a metaphor for friendship and worship. Because as you're brought into a relationship with God, you're friends with God. You're no longer enemies. And friends you invite into your home. So if you're not a Christian this morning, or maybe you've, you've served in the Navy, or you've, you've run to L.A. or New York, and you found yourself back home in Cleveland... Because, like I said, it's kind of a trendy town to be in right now for hipsters. Um, you feed your mind with the evidences. You feed with the mind with the arguments in community. And you come into this relationship with the living Lord. And then you worship. Which means, come back next week. You'll do anything to get to God's people now. Because it's not about performing. It's about loving the Lord and his people and his community. To be around people as they sing, listening to sermons, seeing how people live their lives where they live, work, and play. Breaking bread with other Christians is the way to change. 
And we're going to take communion today, which is a breaking of a bread that reminds you of God's love for you. I hope you found your heart warmed in all this. Because these are great truths. Truths about a person who loved you enough to die for you. And truths about that person that will warm your heart, if you'll let him. Well, we've concluded our investigation. What's your deduction this morning? Deduction means you come to one big grand conclusion. The game's on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this text we can see your great love for us. And there's many of us this morning that might have walked in here with cold hearts and have found them heart warm to you in a new and refreshing way. I pray, Lord, that you would give us such uh, great warmth of heart like Pentecost and that we'd be walk away from here changed, transformed by the renewing of our minds for your honor and glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.